the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. We're going to start off with a couple of head, or say headaches, but let's hope to avoid that. A couple of headlines and then we'll move on to what we typically do on a Friday afternoon, and that is to take a look at the lighter side of the news, which of course we will. Well, Senate Republicans today extended a counteroffer to Christy Blasey Ford to testify on Capitol Hill next Wednesday with negotiations over whether she will elaborate on her allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh in public or in private. She's been given the option. Uh, it's been told that Republican senators want an answer by the end of the day. We need to hear from her. Uh, one senior um, source familiar with the process said Monday is the preferred date that we all know now is not going to happen, but we are open to other things. We're now here that Wednesday is a possibility, but there was uh, there were some strings attached that were unacceptable to the Senate, so they have now issued a counter offer. I think James said he just uh, read a quick headline we haven't confirmed yet, but that if uh, a deal isn't struck by the end of the day, then Monday there's a vote expected. So we'll see what happens there. It's kind of a fluid situation. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley had invited uh, Ford to testify on Monday, gave her until 10 a.m. on Friday to respond. That deadline passed without a deal after her attorney made uh, clear this week that she did not want to testify Monday, but suggested she would another day. Wednesday is now being floated. We also learned that she doesn't want to fly and would instead drive, which would extend the uh, the time as well. Among the terms requested by Forum's legal, uh, legal team, rather, only members of the committee, no lawyers, can question her. And one of the things that Senate Democrats, or excuse me, Senate Republicans wanted to do, because the criticism is you're just a group of old white men, therefore you cannot possibly uh, pursue, seek justice, or understand the situation. So they had suggested that they would have a female attorney do the questioning for them. Well, the uh, uh, Ford's legal team says, no, that's not acceptable to us. Uh, Kavanaugh cannot be in the room at the time. That was never the plan. And Kavanaugh should be questioned first, which makes no sense um, because the charges have not yet been uh, made public. Now, we've seen secondhand what was published in The Washington Post, but no member of the Senate nor Kavanaugh has seen the actual allegations in the letter. Uh, but they, one of the requests was that Kavanaugh would uh, be questioned first before he was had the opportunity to hear Ford's testimony. So, again, that makes no sense. It's like um, you swing the bat before the ball is thrown. It wasn't clear whether Republicans who grant any of those demands, especially making Kavanaugh testify before the hearing allegations. So that series of negotiations is continuing back and forth. Meanwhile, Democrats are saying that even if Judge Kavanaugh becomes Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, one uh, Democratic senator said, if we take back Congress, referring to the Democrats, we'll get to the bottom of this. They're already talking about impeaching him if, in fact, he were to be confirmed. So uh, this will not be over. It is uh, assumed uh, if the Democrats take the majority in the uh, the Senate uh, and uh, Mr. Kavanaugh will not be settled, uh, even if a vote is taken and he is confirmed by primarily one expects the majority of um, 
of Republicans. Also, the Trump administration was rocked uh, this afternoon by a bombshell report saying Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein last year suggested secretly recording the president to expose chaos in the White House and enlisting cabinet members to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. Rosenstein adamantly denies the accusation, but he was overheard by others who say that is precisely what happened and it wasn't a joke. The New York Times story is inaccurate, he says, and factually incorrect. That's his statement. I will not further comment on the story based on anonymous sources who are obviously biased against the department and are advancing their own personal agenda. But let me be clear about this. Based on my personal dealings with the president, there is no basis to invoke the 25th Amendment. Now, in saying that, he didn't say I never have or I did not at that time, and he's not willing to discuss it further. So uh, you're left to just uh, either take him at his word or the word of others who say they overheard him. The article, however, is sure to Royal White House uh, already suspicious of some elements within the Department of Justice and the FBI, as the president complains regularly about the Russia probe he calls a witch hunt. Rosenstein, by the way, oversees that probe. The explosive report published by the New York Times said Rosenstein had discussed wearing a wire to tap Trump and pursuing his removal from office in meetings and conversations with Justice Department and FBI officials. This would have been in the tumultuous days after James Comey was fired as FBI director, with the president citing in part a memo penned by Rosenstein reportedly catching him off guard. Rosenstein even reported suggesting that those interviewing with the president to replace Comey as director of the FBI wear wires to secretly tape him. According to the Times, none of Rosenstein's proposals were acted upon, and it remains unclear the level of seriousness with which um, that he had rather when making those suggestions. Well, Fox News said learned a key meeting took place on the 16th of May in 2017, a Justice Department headquarters, or rather at the headquarters. During that meeting, the subject arose of the possibility of appointing a special counsel to investigate Russia election meddling, according to a source. Several people were in that room, including former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe and former FBI Counsel Lisa Page. Robert Mueller was appointed as special counsel the next day. I remember this meeting and remember the wire comment, a source who was uh, in the room told Fox News. The statement was sarcastic and was never discussed with any intention of recording a conversation with the president, end quote. Also, the Washington Post quoted an unnamed individual saying Rosenstein quipped sarcastically after McCabe pushed for an investigation into the president. What do you want me to do, Andy? Wire the president? Well, the Times quoted other sources who said Rosenstein was serious, however, saying that he also reportedly told McCabe that he might be able to persuade Attorney General Jeff Sessions and then Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, now White House Chief of Staff, to begin proceedings to invoke the 25th Amendment. The details, according to the Times, were confirmed by sources who were briefed on the discussions or memos written about the discussions by McCabe and others. McCabe's attorney issued a statement apparently acknowledging that such memos exist. The special counsel office declined to comment. And at this point, we just have to leave it at that. And President uh, Trump delayed today the release of a trove of documents related to the early days of the FBI Russia investigation, saying the inspector general of the Justice Department has been asked to review them after U.S. allies asked the president not to release them. The president made an announcement on Friday on Twitter saying he believed the inspector general would move quickly and that in the end, I can always declassify if it proves necessary. Speed is very important to me. 
and everyone. Well, apparently not so much. The president had said Thursday night that his administration was dealing with foreign countries that do have a problem, including calls that day from two very good allies, he said. We do have to respect their wishes, but it'll come out. On Monday, the president had ordered the declassification of documents, which include text messages of several FBI and Justice Department officials, including from former FBI Director James Comey and a portion of a secret surveillance warrant application. Seth Meyers, um, uh, well, I won't even go into that. But the president made the extraordinary move in response to calls from his allies in Congress who say that they believe the Russia investigation was tainted by anti-Trump bias within the ranks of the FBI and Justice Department. It also came as the president continued his efforts to undermine special counsel Robert Mueller's probe in the wake of the guilty plea of his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, and amid the ongoing grand jury investigation into a longtime associate, Roger Stone. All developing stories, which we will revisit next week. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Nineteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on what is now become a fun Friday afternoon. James Blind is engineering and producing, and from time to time, he may actually weigh in on a subject. How's your Friday going, James Blind? The first. The first? James Blind, the first, as opposed to the third or junior. I have the first, I suppose, even though my dad's also a James. Oh, so James Blind Jr. Not technically. I think you have to have the same middle name. Oh, never mind. Junior. How you doing? I'm not too bad. I mean, it's a, it's a Friday, so I'm you know I'm counting the minutes. But other than that, I'm doing pretty good back here. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, I noticed that in London, they're trying to help people who, at the end of the week, feel that they're quite exhausted. And in London, if you're hoping to take a rest from your busy schedule and you're being um, offered an alternative to a coffee break, they now have sleep pods that are available at various places throughout the city where you can grab some shut eye for about twenty dollars an hour. You can mosey up to a sleep pod and take a little rest. Now, this was inspired by Japanese capsule hotels. A pop and rest in London's, um, I think it's Shoreditch area, boasts four sleep pods, rooms with dark walls and a lavender aroma to aid in relaxation, each supplied with earplugs and an eye mask. Now, would you would you uh, take something like that as a, a place of rest? I'd be a little nervous because I'm not familiar with the place. It's a little space. and Well, I think I would make an effort to get familiar with the place, very familiar with the place repeatedly. Um, it you know, that, uh, but um, I don't know that I'd be nervous. I mean, I think when I'm taking naps, of course, my, my biggest fear is always, will I remember to wake up? Well, you know, that kind of thing. Will I oversleep <laughs> the 15 minutes I have to take a, uh, a little power nap? A power nap, and you know, that uh, that extra minute you take if you're going for an hour, uh, that's another 18 to 20 pounds or whatever. It's like, uh, that's an expensive oversleep. But, uh, you know. Uh, I just don't sleep well in an unfamiliar place. I well, think I would be a little the, that's distracted. That's the key is make it familiar. Make it very familiar. Use it often. Well, I suppose. But is someone going to walk in? Um, I don't know. Just I'd have to have look have at the pods time. and see how and see how it's set up. I, I could I could go either way on that, on that angle, because I, I agree. It's, I, I'd want to know that there is privacy and safety involved. Yeah, well, there, there you go. Well, the Pop and Rest, as it's called, the co-founders of the uh, of the site, came up with the idea for their venture after they observed Londoners' hectic lifestyle and long working hours. Um, you could see that they were tired all the time, just with coffee and tea wasn't enough. So we thought we should set up something like a private space where they could actually relax in peace. According to the um, 
uh, Pop and Rest, uh, they currently average about 30 to 35 customers a week, among them uh, freelancers, people working in the gig economy. Uh, The director of a fashion company has visited Pop and Rest several times since it opened in June last year. The 58-year-old says that the pods are helpful to catch up on sleep after a late night followed uh, by a business, uh, rather a busy working day. If you go out late in the evening and uh, I've got maybe meetings spread throughout the day, it's just nice to have one hour catch up on your sleep and I'll probably uh, uh, miss the night before. That's the other thing. I can't sleep well if I'm, I'm not a good napper. Some people can nap. They can rest for 15 minutes, 10 minutes, and they are set to go. Um, I have a hard time. I feel too groggy afterwards. I'm not sure this would be the solution for me, but you can consider this your um, pop and rest for the next hour and a half. You're on the Georgine Rice Show. We'll just sort of lull you into a relaxed state. Works for me every day. <laughs> you threatened to sleep when we had a conversation about this earlier. You know, it, it's funny. I was looking here online at uh, trying to figure out, uh, you know, the, the again, we you know, just talked about the safety and privacy angles of this. And uh, there apparently is a uh, company not too far from this particular establishment that sells these units. Um, so I may leave this uh, brochure or whatever here that they have. Uh, I may leave that on the boss's door for the... <laughs> him to discover on Monday, because I wouldn't mind having a few of these around here, because then I trust the privacy and the safety angle, and these things are actually pretty cool. I'll be honest. What I'm looking at, I- I'm digging it. So that's just what every employer wants, a space for their uh, their workers to nap. So what's well, you cool know, it's, about it's, it? Well, at the same time, you know, they do say a power nap will increase uh, productivity. You know, it, it's it's probably an adult version of the clubhouse that, you know, we all love playing with as kids. So it, I think that's probably more it than, than a nap because, I mean, you know, quite honestly, we do have couches around this office and uh, there are a few. And uh, I, I, I don't see, uh, let's just say I don't see habitual nappers around the place. Well, that's true. Although a pod, you don't know who's in it. I assume there's that level of privacy. Yeah, there's definitely that level of privacy. You would not know who is in there. So we'll have to talk to Dennis on Monday and see if perhaps I think pod so. they're, is they're, in our future. They're not that bad. About 2,500 pounds. You know, people do... I mean, the financial pounds. I'm not sure how much it weighs. So. Yeah. People do really strange and dangerous things at Yellowstone National Park, which of course is in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Officials had to ticket a man who was caught on video wandering close to Old Faithful, the geyser, where he risked burns from the boiling hot water that erupts every hour or so. His actions between eruptions startled the crowd of, and, of a couple of hundred people at the park. Park's uh, most famous attraction. At one point, he laid on the ground near the gurgling hole, which I, I don't know what he was trying to prove. Maybe he was trying to get a, a selfie. A bunch of the crowd thought that he was uh, going to jump. He, we didn't know what was going to happen, says one of the observers who shot the uh, video on Friday. The man appeared to um, relieve himself on the geyser while the park ranger repeatedly yelled at him to get to safety. Rangers caught up to him after he eventually walked back onto the nearby boardwalks because they were not going to endanger themselves to go into that area to get him. A ranger cited him with walking off the boardwalk in a thermal area. Yellowstone spokesman said he didn't have the man's identity, but they did cite him. If uh, the man at Old Faithful... um uh, well, I'm not even going to go into that. But Yellowstone's wildlife and majesty uh, is a very popular destination. But we might recall here in uh, a bit closer to home where a young man lost his life venturing off the uh, the trail and fell through the crust of what was thought to be solid ground and uh, ended his life. Uh, ticket, th- this guy got off pretty, uh, pretty easy uh, when you consider the alternative. But people will do the most foolish things despite warnings. Uh, I guess if you want to make a name for yourself or get a good picture for your Facebook page, that might be one way. Way to uh, to go about it. Well, school is back for most people. Most uh, colleges and universities will begin um, soon, if not already. But a homeowner in 
Sandston, Virginia, is tired of students coming onto his property while they're waiting for a nearby bus stop. So he chose to erect an electrified fence to ensure that they would, well, get the message. They don't respect other people's land, the man said. I pick up trash every day. I'm not sure an electrified fence will make any difference with the trash, but that's when the man identified as ABC8 uh, decided to uh, set up an electric fence, according to the local um, television station. It's powered by batter and it wouldn't really hurt anyone, but the fence separates the man's front yard from a school bus stop, according to the news station. He took the uh, measure because he uh, he claims simple no trespassing signs didn't do the trick. Nothing stops people, particularly kids. So on Tuesday, this is about a week ago, when uh, many of the children were waiting to take the bus to so the first day of school, people began to raise concerns. I touched it. I got a slight shock. It wasn't that great, says one neighbor. Uh, I just don't think uh, he understood the neighbor's concerns about the kids. One of them could touch it, fall onto it, and get shocked. Well, I imagine the voltage is quite low, but that was uh, his way of trying to deal with the situation. Well, the man uh, said he's so sick of students at the nearby stop uh, getting on the lawn that he needed to take matters into his own hands. Um, uh, Outraged parents called officials at the uh, local police department. Uh, Tucker was uh, later told to remove the fence because it was technically placed on county property. However, he can reinstate the fence as long as it stays on his property line. The message has gotten across. Parents are posting and uh, talking about it. So perhaps this year uh, he can keep the electrified fence, maybe even turn it off, and kids will just be wary of uh, crossing what he has uh, determined is the line. Well, a lesson on how to park a car somehow turned into a swim at a community pool. Maryland's Montgomery County Fire and Rescue Services say it found a car sitting in the middle of the city's pool over the weekend following a driver error during a parking practice session. I'm not sure how you end up in the middle of a pool parking, uh, or at least attempting to park, because one would assume that you would be moving at such a slow rate of speed that you couldn't possibly end up in the middle of a pool. But photographs posted on Twitter showed the car halfway submerged in the pool at the North Creek Community Center, which had been closed for the season. Um, A spokesperson for the service tweeted that there were no injuries. Both people managed to climb out themselves. He said in an interview with the Washington Post that a man and a woman in their 50s and 60s respectively were in the car, although it wasn't clear who was behind the wheel. Apparently neither wanted to confess or admit that it was them. Wow, the middle of a pool. You're listening to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, about 29 minutes after 4 o'clock, having a bit of fun taking a look at the lighter side of the news. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. So, James, are you ready for the official start of autumn, which uh, is tomorrow, the 22nd of September? I have all my uh, welcome autumn signs ready for my lawn. I actually had my first pumpkin spice latte. I don't like to do things too early. We're still in summer. This full day is officially summer. Autumn doesn't come until tomorrow. So I had my first uh, pumpkin spice latte the other day. And surprisingly, it it didn't appeal to me quite as much as it had seasons before. So I might be a little bit off of pumpkin spice. It might have been a little bit of overload, overkill uh, over the years. But I'm moving my way into uh, the autumn months. I'm looking forward to things uh, starting to change more rapidly now and summer drawing to a close. Although next week, I understand we're going to have mid-80 temperatures uh, in the early part of the week, so who knows? Yeah, summer, summer is fighting to hold on. It's like... Uh 
I don't care about the calendar. I'm sticking around. Yeah. Well, I have a few more things I need to get done in the yard, so it's yeah, not, as do not I. too a couple bad. Of, a couple of rounds of uh, the, the weed and feed and a couple of things to get the grass uh, ready for the fall, as it were, for the drenching that it should be getting in about three weeks. Yeah, probably so. And for the next several months, my yep. understanding is, although we never actually know, we're not going to get a lot of snow this time around. We'll have to actually wait and see, but that's what we're hearing. You know, I'm not a superstitious person by any means. I don't believe in superstition. I really never have, even before I even before I was a Christian. I was not a superstitious person, but it's one of those things. Just don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't say that. <laughs> All righty then. Delaware's Division of Motor Vehicles has installed a safe selfie zone huh? at its four locations that will allow newly licensed drivers to share the news and not their personal details. Well, the WBOC-TV reports that the zones feature a bright backdrop in front of which people can take pictures of themselves to share on social media in lieu of sharing photographs of their driver's license, which is something you probably are tempted to do when you've just earned yours. According to a DMV informational image, the top of the uh, backdrop is emblazoned with the words, Look who's driving now. The station reports that the idea is the brainchild of a DMV uh, employee. Last year, Delaware issued about 36,500 new licenses to minors and adults. Um, And this is just a way of letting everybody know I'm on the road. In fact, I often tell my adult friends that when their sons and daughters have earned their license to please send me an email, a text, phone me, so that I'm aware of the fact they're on the road and can take um, the necessary precautions. Last week, we talked a little bit about um, bridezillas and some of the things that uh, women will do when they're anticipating getting married that seem altogether unreasonable. Then there's this one. Britain's biggest bridezilla, a newlywed who spent um, 70,000 pounds. I'm not sure how much that is in dollars. But the uh, 70,000 pounds went toward five different ceremonies and 13 wedding gowns. Uh, guests who veered from her dress code were cut from photos. Uh, in fact, they uh, were required to wear certain things, and if they failed to do so, they weren't ousted from the wedding, but they were not welcomed in the wedding photos. Wow. Well, a newlywed has become branded Britain's biggest bridezilla after holding five different wedding ceremonies during which she wore 13 dresses. Uh, she married the same man five times spent 70,000 pounds in total on her wedding celebrations. The first two ceremonies were held in Nigeria. Okay, that might make sense. She lives elsewhere. At a cost of about 2,500 pounds uh, to uh, each guest, one of whom had to take out a loan in order to attend. Now, can I just, at a cost of around 2,500 pounds to each guest, this isn't just what the bride spent, the guests, 2,500 pounds, one of whom had to take out a loan in order to attend the wedding. That had to be a family member. Speaking on this morning, uh, Sandra, the bride, said that she doesn't feel guilty about expecting people to attend multiple ceremonies because they should want to be there for her at such a significant time because obviously she's just that important. She also told... Um, how she instructed guests off the dance floor at one ceremony and in order to watch her and her new husband dancing. So step aside, we're going to take the floor now. And that those who failed to stick to her dress code were not included in her wedding photos. But her remarks were slammed by this morning viewers on Twitter with some calling her greedy and even went so far as to say it was vulgar. But she said she always dreamed of having the perfect wedding. I hope she's given as much thought to having a perfect wedding, or I should say wedding, uh, or married life following the wedding. Maybe not perfect, but a good marriage. That takes some effort and time as well. But found she wanted so many different things that one day simply was not enough.
She explained, from a young age, us girls plan the biggest days of our life. So when the time came, I wanted to have the perfect wedding. I thought, I want it here. I want it there. I want it there. And thought, why I can't, or rather, why can't I um, have what I've always dreamed of? I hope they're not living on the street, having spent so much on the wedding. But her first wedding took place in her father's home village of Nigeria. And uh, her second was a huge party in a hotel in Lagos. That cost about 2,500 pounds to attend. Let's clarify that. If you wanted to to attend. You had to pay $2,500. One of her guests took out a loan. But she doesn't feel guilty for making her loved ones fork over uh, some cash to attend her weddings, plural, saying, if you care about somebody, you love them, then why would you not be there for such a significant day? So I don't feel guilty, she says. Now, James, how much would you have been willing to pay to attend my wedding if you and I had been introduced uh, by that time? Well, I think the, uh, you know, it depends on, you know, where it was at. Um, Say it's in town here. Would you be willing to spend $2,500? To attend my wedding? No, but I might be willing to spend twenty five hundred dollars to not have to go. <laughs> no, but I think I see. I would go. I'd go to the Nigeria thing, and I wouldn't think about the money. I just wouldn't even think about it. And then before I leave, I would email all my friends and say, "Hey guys, I'm in Nigeria, and I need twenty five hundred dollars to get home. Can you wire this money to me?" You know, kind of like the "No, I'm not a Nigerian prince, but by golly, I'm stuck in Nigeria." See if anybody believed me. Wow, I think it would work. By the way, the bride says that she would do the same. I have done the same, so I think it's fine. Apparently, she's had to fork over some cash to attend others' weddings. She told, how, told rather how during the hotel party, she kicked her guests off the dance floor so that they could watch her and her new husband dance all night. And she refused to let those who hadn't um, followed the code to remain. Her third wedding was on a beach, and she argued with the videographer about the shots he was taking of, of them, expecting the waves of the sea <coughs> to be in a perfect... Oh, sorry. Perfect position in the background. So she was uh, upset with the photographer because the waves behind them were apparently not in perfect position behind her. For her fourth wedding, she had a much more low-key ceremony at a registry office in Coventry and was furious when many of her family and friends refused to attend because, well, they'd been to so many of her other celebrations already. Little guest fatigue. Uh, Her last uh, day was a lavish white wedding in um, Grosvenor, a house in London for which she had 13 bridesmaids and two wedding gowns. She made her guests um, learn an elaborate dance routine for the reception, which they ultimately did not perform because the bride turned up four hours late. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> They didn't perform the elaborate dance they were forced to learn because the bride turned up four hours, four hours late. Did anybody wait for her? I, mm, wow. She says she's thrilled with how her weddings turned out, saying, honestly, they were everything I've ever imagined. Four hours late. Mm. Before I met my husband, I told my friends I'm going to get married in Nigeria in December, and I did it. Everything I wanted happened, she says. She claims she was, um, she'd made up her mind, uh, made up rather with most of her friends and family uh, she fell out with over her bridezilla actions, but refused to say how many she had reconciled with. Her story was uh, criticized by the morning viewers with one tweeting, Britain's biggest bridezilla, what's wrong with wanting a simple wedding these days? Uh, and it went on from there. Um, Greed and vulgar, said yet another. Five ceremonies. How many dresses? Seven, 13 dresses? Anyway, we had a simple ceremony. In fact, one of the fun things that Dan Rice and I like to do, we watch these um, uh, shows, I think it's called Four Weddings is one of the shows that we watch. And we make jokes about different things that they insist on having their wedding. And we pretend as though we had uh, done that at our wedding, but... Uh, 
hadn't done it quite to the level that they had. Like we do, we'll make a joke about the cocktail hour, which of course we didn't have, but um, our, our signature drink and all of the uh, elements that are required now for young people in some quarters to get married. Anyway, it's kind of a fun little game that we play. Well, it's uh, perfectly normal for brides to feel stressed uh, leading up to their wedding day. Couples spend months meticulously planning what's meant to be the most happiest day of their lives. One would hope that they're followed by even happier days as married couples. Um, So what could possibly go wrong? Well, according to these unfortunate people, they have had to face come face to face with over the top bridezillas who have taken it too far. Bridesmaids and wedding guests have shared their most outrageous requests Uh, that they've received from demanding brides. One Australian woman, Chloe, was due to give birth at any moment. And to add more stress to her pregnancy, she was expected to walk down the aisle as a bridesmaid at a wedding in a couple of weeks in time. Well, the bride had asked her to, uh, to be induced so that she could have the baby and be the bridesmaid and look better in the dress. (laughs) Okay. Another um, woman shared a story about the wedding that her cousin was invited to, where the bride made the most ridiculous demands on their guests. The bride was an Australian woman that uh, none of the guests even liked, and she insisted that everyone make their own special surreal headpieces for the ceremony. Headpieces. So basically, everyone had a job trying to invent and make the headpieces in the run-up to the wedding. There was a huge fuss about the whole thing by the bride who made a Facebook group and kept posting to it with a... um, Uh, Most asked questions and answers uh, section and a list of rules for the day. Rules. Then a few weeks after the wedding, the bride went totally mental in a big rambling online post about the lack of presence uh, that she and her husband received and threatened to name and shame people who hadn't given them a present or money yet. She even sent cards to a person who hadn't given a present yet, say, present yet rather, saying thanks for the present in a really passive-aggressive way. In other words, I'm sure it's coming. Thanks. Um, another said that he was uh, asked by the groom to keep an eye on his tuxedo for any signs of dandruff on the wedding, so he was charged with uh, brushing the shoulders of the, uh, the groom. He had a bad case of dandruff at the time. I told him to choose a light-colored tux, but the bride insisted the guys wear black, a color that, of course, showed every particle of dandruff. So he placed a small brush in his pocket and every so often dusted him off as discreetly as possible throughout the day. And in a slight twist, a bride came forward to share a ridiculous request that she received from one of her guests. I'm the bride. I had told people my wedding date almost a year ago. One of my friends messaged me and said the, a few months ago, asked if uh, she would change her wedding date because another of her friends just set her wedding date for three weeks before. She said it would be great to attend both weddings and to make uh, the trip all at once. Needless to say, the date wasn't changed. Hmm. Um, we've sacrificed so much and only asked each guest for around $1,500, says yet another bride. We talked to a few people who even promised us uh, more to make our dream come true. I specifically, I mean specifically ask for cash gifts. How could we have our wedding that we dreamed up without proper funding, the bride said. Our guests, our request rather, of $1,500 for all guests uh, didn't seem like much to us. Far too many didn't uh, cough up the money and therefore the wedding was canceled. I think I mentioned that one last week, but it's an amazing thing to consider what people expect on their wedding day with the operative word being their wedding day and not yours. 47 minutes after 4 o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I don't know about you, but I woke up in the middle of the night and I watched the royal wedding. I 
found it absolutely thrilling, all the pomp and circumstance. But I, one thing I learned uh, after or since the uh, big affair was the Dutch, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge have a few unconventional hurdles to leap uh, past when they're parenting. Uh, and certainly the um, the future king and his bride and their three children, George, Charlotte and Louis, uh, have some unconventional hurdles to uh, to climb. Uh, the same rule may apply to Harry and Meghan, as we anticipate, and they've said they want children in the near future. First, there's the insatiable paparazzi, always keen to snap the children on their way to school, which I wouldn't have enjoyed as a kid. Then there are the many confusing royal etiquette rules. After that, there are the official royal events, which weren't exactly planned with a rambunctious toddlers in mind. And then lastly, there's the unusual custody arrangement with the queen. Well, even the most knowledgeable knowledgeable fan might not be aware of this, but according to royal historians, Prince William and Kate Middleton don't have legal custody of their own children. Hmm. The cost of being a royal. That, in fact, belongs to the children's 92-year-old great-grandmother, Queen Elizabeth II. The sovereign has legal custody of the minor grandchildren, royal expert Marlene Koenig uh, says. Uh, this goes back to King George I, who ruled in the uh, early 1700s, and the law's never been changed. He didn't uh, did it rather because he had very poor relationships with his son, uh, the future King George II. So they had uh, this law passed that meant that the king was the guardian of his grandchildren. Well, the law is more than 300 years old. It was passed by a majority of uh, 10 out of 12 judges in 1717 who decided the monarch's right of uh, supervision extended to his grandchildren. And this right of right uh, belongs to his majesty, king of the realm, even during their father's lifetime. Well, according to the historian who has written two books on the history of the British royal family and had dozens of articles published in the Euro History Journal, the law was legislated once again in 1772 when King George III was in power and has never been uh, superseded by new legislation. Now, the custody law still stands today and over recent decades has affected the way the royals parent their children, especially when it comes to matters of upbringing, travel and education. When Prince Harry and William were little, Prince Charles asked asked the Queen if both children could fly on a plane together to Scotland, to which the Queen said yes. Okay. Technically, they needed permission to travel. The Queen has the last word on parenting decisions like that. Now, wouldn't that be a, a challenge? It wasn't the only time that the Queen's um, uh, tick of approval was uh, necessary. An absence of the Queen's permission meant Princess Diana was not allowed to fly with her children to Australia shortly before her death. The, the um, uh, later required uh, Prince Charles asked for permission before he sent William to the uh, uh, then a teenager off on a holiday camp in the U.S say in the 1900s. Imagine asking your mother if your son can go someplace. Well, another subtle nod to the unusual custody arrangement was in 1996, uh, the divorce agreement between the Duke and Duchess of Wales, Prince Charles and Diana, and the Duke and Duchess of York, Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson. Custody is not included in those uh, documents because they did not legally have custody of their children to begin with. Well, the law also expi- explains, rather, why Prince Di- uh, Princess Diana wishes for her brother and mother to be Harry and William's legal guardians, as laid out in her will, were swiftly ignored by the palace. Put simply, Diana didn't have final say on the boy's upbringing or uh, anything to do with the care and control of her sons, the Queen did. 
Well, perhaps uh, frustratingly, William and Kate shouldn't expect to receive legal custody of their children anytime soon either. According to the historian, in the event of the Queen's passing, the legal custody of George, Charlotte and Louis and any other grandchildren in the palace will be passed on to their grandfather, Prince Charles, who would then be king. Situation will be the same for any future children born to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Thankfully, the historian says the palace doesn't make a big deal out of the law, and, or rather didn't in 2018, and doubts Charles, who um, she describes as very respectable of his son's parenting, would ever overshadow important or meaningful decisions. He understands they want to raise their kids privately. The only thing Charles might ask for is more pictures, she joked. So, custody. I was thinking we might want to do an arrangement like that. Maybe I should oversee the custody of your daughter. She's awfully cute, and I would, uh, I'd like to have a say in how the two of you are, um, are raising her, how many times she would come visit me, for example, how many pictures I'm entitled to, and so on. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm all for you having custody of her around bedtime. <laughs> well, we, we can negotiate the terms. Twice a week at around 11 p.m., Jeff Goldstein stretches out, turns on his spa playlist, lights a candle, and gets a 90-minute massage, courtesy of his children's nanny. At first, I felt a little awkward, he admits. He's 41. He has two kids and co-owns the celeb favorite clothing boutique Blue and Cream in the Hamptons, excuse me, the Hamptons in East Village with his wife, Samantha Greens. But then it was so, so good. Having a nanny who can teach your kids a second language doesn't cut it anymore in New York City's elite circles. You might want to take notes, James. Now there's a fleet of super nannies who will design custom dresses for the tots, give moms daily blowouts, and yes, even massage the boss. Huh. Just ask Lamore Weinstein, who owns a nanny consulting business, LW Wellness, in Manhattan. One Upper West Side family whose kids are four and seven asked her to procure a yoga-certified nanny. They wanted to make sure everybody in the household was balanced and mindful. Weinstein's search was successful, and after-school play dates at the family's apartment now include yoga lessons. It's definitely an attraction, says the owner of this agency, of the family's new popularity. Once a week, when the kids are in school, the nanny travels to the father's real estate office for a 30-minute yoga session. It might sound extravagant, yeah, you think? But as Aaron Maloney Winder, the president of Abigail Madison, a household staffing company in Manhattan, said, if you're able to afford something and you treat the people well, there's no limit to what a nanny can do. He added that these uh, super nannies often uh, command $10 more an hour than the $20 an hour going rate. Recently, Malone Winder, they uh, secured a nanny for a Greenwich, Connecticut CEO and mother of four who wanted her caregiver to blow out her hair daily. In addition to caring for her two girls' locks, driving them to school and preparing three meals a day, her sons have their own nanny. The girl's nanny, a former beautician, not only handles all three ladies' tresses, but does the mom's manicures and facials. Wealthy families have a certain way of looking at things, says uh, Vice President of the Pavilion Agency, a domestic staffing company in Midtown. Uh, They realize uh, when interviewing people that they might be able to get a a lot more than their basic needs met. Well, Greenberg had one New Jersey client request a nanny who could drive a Zamboni because the kids had their own ice skating rink. He filled the slot by some demands or too great even for him. One time a family lived in a remote area in the Midwest where uh, there were bears. Uh, They wanted a New York savvy 
nanny, but one who knew how to use a blank gun to scare the bears. I couldn't get anyone. Unfortunately, not a lot of New York nannies are up to that. And while plenty of employers have wild requests, families sometimes strike gold without even realizing it. One Tribeca mom who asked to remain anonymous for fear someone might poach her nanny said her child's caregiver of five years has designed nearly a dozen costume frocks for the six-year-old. Uh, she turns um, turned my Lily Pulitzer skirt into a dress for my, uh, my daughter, made her a Disney-themed birthday outfit, and even made her and her best friend kindergarten graduation dresses, says the mother. Goldstein, who splits time between um, uh, Tribeca and another location was similarly surprised by his nanny's secret um, talent. He learned that Laren was in school to become a certified massage therapist only after she was hired to care for his and his wife's four-year-old and one-and-a-half-year-old children. She will massage my son's toes when he has a sinus condition to drain the sinuses. It blows my mind, no pun intended. Meanwhile, he and uh, the wife uh, take advantage of Laren's skills after hours. After dinner's done and the kids are asleep, it's massage time. Uh, Mr. Goldstein says that um, they tip Lauren extra for the rubdowns. I'm seriously considering launching a massage business, Nannies Who Massage, he says. Now, these nannies, you can recognize them by the big bags under their eyes. They have an exhausted look because it sounds to me like they're working 24-7 for only about $10 more per hour after caring for people's kids around the clock. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Technically, the 22nd of September. Although uh, my understanding is we're going to have some pretty warm days next week, but I'm looking forward to making that transition, at least from a technical standpoint, from summer. And haven't we had an extraordinary summer into fall. So looking forward to it. I am too. You know, it's one of those things. I've I've, uh, I've not yet gotten to that point where it's seeing the rain come down. It, it, it doesn't fill me with dread. And... I actually really enjoyed it. So yeah, so far yeah. I am too for the most part. Other than uh, about a, what, a week ago or so where it felt like the ocean had just turned itself upside down <laughs> yeah. and was dumping itself on us. Other than that, it's been pretty good so far. It's, I'd for almost forgotten what it looked like. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how long it will take us before we get tired of the rain and we start complaining. Uh, I'm guessing, let's see, it's 23rd of... That's so uh, 22nd, 23rd of September? No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'd say mid-October. I'm going to go yes. with mid-October. Probably about right. Okay, now you're an, a former New Yorker. I don't know if it's it's fair to say it's, you are a New Yorker. I, once a New Yorker, always a New Yorker, okay. I suppose. Well, an international pizza consultant, and yes, there oh, is this story. such a yep. thing, Ugh. has named Portland America's greatest pizza city. Now, reserve your judgment for just a moment. Mm-hmm. According to Anthony Falco, who owns Roberta's Pizza Restaurant in Brooklyn, speaking to KGW News, um, partnering with the Oregonian, uh, say that it's all about the flour, uh, high-quality milled grains from the Pacific Northwest, and the produce, think fresh seasoned pie, seasonal pies from places like a Pizza Shoals, or Lovely 55, that makes the pizza. And we, of course, have both those things uh, here in the uh, in the area. Now, Oregonian's food critic Michael Russell chimed in on this controversial uh, conversation, saying that, uh, for the record, the international pizza consultant title is a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, idea, though Falco does indeed travel the globe, sourdough starter stowed in his suitcase, helping restaurants set up their pizza programs. And his um, wild mushrooms, liquefied triple cream cheese pizza was one of the best bites of the misty night uh, joining the caviar topped cool ranch doritos oh that does not sound good anyway different kinds of pizza so i wanted to put the question to you do you think portland makes the best pizza in the country now you're a new yorker you've had authentic pizza yes i have what are your thoughts now l- let me qualify a little bit about where, where the gentleman is coming from here he's coming from brooklyn which is, brooklyn is known as the birthplace of new york new york pizza and one of the birthplaces of pizza in this country um it, it's 
the the original New York pizza places in Brooklyn. It still operates. Um, that said, there are two Brooklyns. There are the old school Brooklyn, which has all these wonderful brick oven pizzas, and then there's the Brooklyn that really honestly is Portland. It is very Portland-esque. The the uh, the type of food eateries, the the microbrews, the artisan foods, the, very similar. I kind of get the impression he's from that side of town. And so he's going to be coming in with it with a sensibility that appeals to Portland. Now, some Portland pizza places have a really, really good pizza. It may not resemble a New York-style pizza, but I can respect that. Like, you know, a good one, a good one that we always talk about around here at the office that we don't get to as often as we used to. Flying Pie, for example, mm-hmm. one of the best pizzas in town, really one of the best pizzas I've ever tasted, especially if you have the sausage, which is uh they're pretty much sure they make their own. Now, see, uh, I, I want a know, good sausage as opposed to hamburger. It seems like some exactly. of it has so little seasoning that it, it and doesn't this really is, qualify. This is, if, have you had their sausage? We, you we, know, we, it's been so long. Our station used to be close to a flying pie, so we'd get them more frequently, but it's been a while. We need to fix that. We need to get one in here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. But, the um the the thing for me is that it is very some of it is the, the more artisans are are very good food but the pizza itself has become so stretched if you will pardon the pun from what its original intent was uh, that I can't call it pizza I mean flying pie that's a pizza I have no problem with that but some of these things where it's drenched in ranch dressing and <laughs> and you know covered in kale I mean you know. It, it, I'll be honest, as a New Yorker, I have issues with the Hawaiian pizza, for example. Okay, now you get yeah, personal. You know, I know, I know, I understand that. As I've explained to people, if you go back to New York and they serve a Hawaiian pizza, walk out because you're in a tourist-geared pizza place. If you want a true New York place, you want the kind of place that will throw you out for asking for a Hawaiian pizza. <laughs> uh, but the the reality of it is, is I'm sure that, you know, the, the pizzas he's talking about, some of them are very, very delicious. I've had some of them. But at the end of the day... I just can't bow to calling them a pizza. So for me, the answer is Portland does not have the best pizza. It has some very good food, but it does not have the best pizza. So would you describe yourself as something of a pizza snob? Uh, I don't describe myself that, but many people do, (laughs) 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 including my wife. What for you makes a good pizza? Because you have thick crust, thin crust, you have deep crust, you have a cheese in the rim of the crust. What constitutes a good pizza? Now, the one thing, you know, of course, there's a lot of people like the the Chicago-style pizza which is the real deep dish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, there's the traditional, what they call New York style, which is actually in New York, we refer to as a Neapolitan as from Naples. Um, that's not the only style. They also have Sicilian there, which is a square, uh, thicker crust. Um, and that, it's very hard to get that outside of New York. That's actually my favorite kind of pizza. I love a good Sicilian pizza. Uh, but uh, square, cut in pieces. You get the middle piece because there's no crust mm-hmm. whatsoever. It's just all cheese and sauce. But what makes a really good pizza, and it's very hard in New York, outside of New York, it's the water. It's not the flour. It's the water. It's the hard water versus soft water thing. Uh, the best pizzas I've had outside of New York are places that charge an arm and a leg because what they've done is they've brought water in from New York. Huh. Um, and that is part of what makes the pizza crust rise in just a certain way, not too chewy, not too much. You know, one, the box should never, you can, you should not be able to reuse the box. It should be greasy. <laughs> okay, there uh, you go. That's, that's, that's a key. You should be able to fold the slice and it doesn't crack on the bottom. Um, and the reality of it is, is the, the, the sauce that you make and your crust should be good enough that even though you put toppings on it, it's not the centerpiece. If you put so much toppings on it that you can't see the cheese, you can't see the crust, you can't see the sauce, you're kind of hinting that maybe 
maybe the sauce and the crust aren't so good. Like I said, the one that falls outside that rule, flying pie, because they dump a lot of toppings on them. They're all so good, and so is their sauce. So they managed to pull it out. Okay. And, and for the record, no, they did not pay me for this performance. <laughs> Here are some pizzerias that we're being told are the best in Portland. Tell me if you've if you've tried them, and, and okay. if so, what you think. East Gleason Pizza Lounge. I have not tried them. Okay. Um, two-roomed uh, pizzeria. There is the Baby Doll Pizza. I have had that. Your thoughts? It's actually pretty good. Pretty good. It's pretty good. I, I, I would give that a positive rating. I, I, again, I, I don't know that it, you know, a friend flew in from uh, New York City today. I don't know if I'd take them right there. but Okay. Uh, Pizzeria Auto. I have not had that one. Yeah, it's in the Roseway neighborhood. I haven't heard of it myself. No. Um, let's see. What's this next one? Taste Bud, the name of, of a pizzeria. No, I've not tried that. The, the thing that, of course, of course, the big thing being Portland, some of these pizza places, because I looked at the list the other day when this, mm-hmm. the story came out, some of these are carts. Yeah, that's true. And uh, Taste so, Bud is a, a farmer's market. Yeah, pizzeria. so some of them are just like, I, I don't hear much about because carts move around a little bit. I mean, even if they have a great reputation, it's it's tough to get to a, every pizza cart. Now, this one, uh, they say um, it's an early kitchen sink creation. Leeks, green olives, uh, red peppers, golden raisins. Now, this does not sound like a uh, James Blend pizza. No, that is not, not, James is a minimal, a topping minimalist. Golden raisins on a pizza, I, I'd have to say no to that. Scotty's Pizza Parlor. Yes. And? Good. Very, very good. Handsome Pizza. Well, the name seems like something I would hang out at. Uh, I can't <laughs> say I've been there. It's in uh, Northeast Portland. Um, pizza Jerk. That sounds mean. Well, it that does. sounds New Yorkish, though. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, thin, cus- th- thin crust, East Coast style uh, pies. Lovely 50 for 50. No. Yeah, see, you're learning something here today. Learn a little bit here. And let's see, the number one pizzeria, at least according to this uh, survey, a Pizza Shoals. A Pizza Shoals is kind of legendary. In Portland, it is probably. I mean, I personally like Flying Pie best, but quality-wise, I'd say it's probably the best pizza in town. Wow, um, a Pizza Shoals is. I mean, it's not a true New York. I think they think they're more New York than they are, and that's okay. It's just a very, very, very good pizza. It doesn't. It, it's not New York. It's not anything. It's genuinely their own. They call it a sort of New York meets New Haven hybrid. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. It, it's, um, I, I would say, dollar for dollar, the best pizza in, in Portland. Uh, but if you're looking for the best New York style pizza, it, I wouldn't qualify it. it you know, there's some old the old standbys, Escape from New York over in 23rd. Uh, there's uh, one up in Vancouver that I particularly like called NYC Pizzeria. Um, and there's a, there's a few others out there that if you're looking for that New York slice, you can get it. Uh, but you know, I, that's the thing I like about a pizza though, it, a pizza shoals is that uh, kind of if you're on the more artisan side of the pizza, the stuff I won't call a pizza, you can get that and it's good. If you're more on the pizza side, the traditionalist, you can get that and it's good. Okay. Well, so I, that's the one thing I'll agree with the pizza shoals, hands down. All right. Best pizza. Play. And by the way, that's on Hawthorne if you're looking for a good pizza place. 18 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. Hopefully I get endorsements off that, you know. <laughs> Anyone who wants to send a free pizza over? I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 23 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Taco Bell has been voted the best Mexican restaurant in the country by people who probably don't know anything about Mexican food. But nonetheless, <laughs> Taco Bell is celebrating the return of Nacho Fries and um, Demolition Man's third, 25th anniversary with a futuristic dining experience. Um, and uh, so they're touting the fact that they have been voted best Mexican restaurant in the country. 
It was a Harris poll, a nationwide customer survey, survey rather, of their favorite brands, and they released their 2018 results. Now, the poll surveyed about 77,000 customers in the United States on more than 3,000 brands to find which companies are the favorite among consumers. Now, respondents weighed in on everything from printers to pizza, and the results, well, surprising doesn't seem a strong enough word. Some of the results, best Mexican restaurant, Taco Bell. The after-hours crowd is still probably Taco Bell's biggest customer base, but the company has grown in popularity through creative ads like the Nacho Fries Conspiracy Theory movie trailers. Um, the company has about 7,000 locations, does nearly $2 billion in revenue uh, annually. Best Mexican food? Well, I think that's kind of the... You just mentioned, I think, the main reason, 7,000 yeah. locations. and it's, They're open, they're there. It, they're open, they're there, and I mean, you know, I, I don't know about you, but the, the, the you know, the best Mexican restaurants I've been to don't have more than a location or two. Yeah, exactly. That's and so exactly they're right. they're just not going to get uh, they're just not going to get the mentions, unfortunately. The one thing I'll say is funny is uh, you know they have a lot of these uh, food delivery services nowadays. And I believe it's Grubhub will deliver Taco Bell to you because, you know, there isn't one close enough, so you need to get it delivered. Um, but um, it's listed, the category is Californian, comma, healthy. <laughs> Californian, healthy. Uh, okay, I can go with the Californian, but have you been to Taco Bell? <laughs> healthy. Yeah, I guess healthy is a relative thing. Okay, best burger restaurant, Five Guys. This is a Virginia burger chain. They now have 1,500 locations, 13 uh, countries. Uh, the company started in 1986 with Jerry Merle and his four sons, uh, the original Five Guys. All of the sons are still with the company, which now employs about 15,000 people. Five Guys? Five Guys is, is certainly a very good national burger and one of my favorites. Um, nationally, there's a chain that's not in Portland yet called Shake Shack. That's my personal oh, I've, favorite. Yeah, I've been hearing about um, that. Although locally, I, I will admit I, I am uh, fully uh, fully committed to the Killer Burger. Ah, not many of them, so they may make their way up the list. Exactly, it's at gonna, some point. It, they're not quite uh, they're not they're quite there in numbers, but I'm definitely looking forward to the first uh, Shake Shack in the Northwest coming this fall. So, oh really? Do you know where? Uh, Seattle. Oh, uh, Seattle. Hey, you know it's going to be north or south basically. You, know, you want to go to Shake Shack? You got to go north. You want to go to In and Out? You got to go south to Salem. So, you yeah, know. I guess so. Okay, best coffee shop. This is a little surprising. Krispy Kreme. Okay, it's probably more about the donuts than the coffee, but there's uh, no question Krispy Kreme reigns supreme in the fried dough area. The company, uh, they turned 81 in July. They have locations all over the world. They opened their thousandth shop in Kansas City, Kansas in 2015. The first customer received a dozen free donuts every week for a year. Uh, that's it's not a lot a, of donuts. Yeah, and uh, but the interesting thing is that's the best coffee shop. I guess they have good coffee. You know, I, I'm not a big coffee person, uh, but uh, I, I have long since, uh, especially on the East Coast, you find that, that that survey is often won by Dunkin' Donuts, yeah. another donut chain. And uh, often in taste tests, they beat Starbucks. So uh, there's something to be said, I guess, for the donut uh, coffee combo. Um, uh, you know, for me, though, it's I'm, I'm, I'm about the Dutch bros. There you go. Okay, best chicken restaurant. It's not a shock that Chick-fil-A tops the charts for national chicken restaurants. No need to go anywhere else. Yeah, people love Chick-fil-A. The fact that their locations uh, close on Sunday just seems to make customers want them all the more. The company does about $8 billion in revenue, despite having one-third of the locations that Taco Bell does. So kudos to um, Chick-fil-A. I I love this little area where there's a Chick-fil-A. I'm talking about right off of 224. There's a Chick-fil-A. I think it's on Sunnyside. Yep. And then there's a Hobby Lobby sort of in this little similar area. I just feel like I, I'm at home when I go from one to the other. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's so I could rare. See, I could see why. Yeah, right, I could see why. Right in Portland. It's a, it's an amazing thing. Okay, best pizza in this survey, Blaze Pizza. Have you ever had it? I've not. Compared to the other food-related brands, Blaze Pizza is still in their infancy. The company started in 2011. Uh, 35 states, Canada and Kuwait. Uh, the name comes from the speed at which the restaurant has your pizza ready with the average cook time around three minutes. Not sure that's a great idea, but LeBron James became an investor in 2012, so can't be all bad. Best sandwich, Subway and Panera. Subway is the biggest restaurant in the world with 43,306 locations worldwide. That number puts them at about 10,000 locations ahead of McDonald's. That's surprising. Panera, originally known as St. Louis Bread Company, is still headquartered there in that region. The company is continually voted the healthiest fast casual restaurant option. Very good food. I do enjoy it. You just feel better when you walk in and eat their meal. Best ice cream, frozen yogurt, Ben and Jerry's. The original founders, of course, sold the company back in 2000, but the customers still love the unique flavors and experimental ingredients that made the company famous. Um, Can be found in 40 countries worldwide. Well, there you have it. Some of those I'd never even heard of before, but... Yeah, I was just looking at the the Blaze pizza you mentioned, and I recall that there had been one over in Beaverton. Uh, I'm guessing it did not do well enough to stay in business, but uh, very similar to the concept that you see as a mod pizza, Mm -hmm. pieology, and that type of stuff. Very similar concept. Um, Two McDonald's customers who went uh, viral for hanging a poster in a Pearland Texas restaurant have been awarded for their uh, prank with a, a big payout from the fast food chain. Uh, this pair, a 21 and 25 year old respectively, placed the sign in the Pearland McDonald's after noticing a lack of Asian representation in the marketing materials. Uh, we were eating McDonald's one day and we looked around and saw that there were posters that didn't have any Asians, says one of the pair. They had other races, but no Asians. So we felt like it was our duty to put ourselves up, which they did. So they concocted a scheme that involved buying McDonald's uniforms from Goodwill, creating fake badges to have their sign placed in the store. Although the friends were worried about getting in trouble, the sign remained in the store unnoticed for 51 days (laughs) (laughs) until the pair posted about their prank on Twitter where it went viral. Now uh, they're being rewarded for their stunt on the Ellen DeGeneres show. The two men found out that the uh, McDonald's uh, McDonald's rather wants more Asian American representation in their marketing and is going to feature both of them in an upcoming campaign but the good news doesn't end there. Each will be given $25,000 dollars for their participation in the promotion. We should we should take a picture of us. We don't see enough middle-aged women and young fathers at McDonald's. Sure. Let's do it. Absolutely. I could use $25,000. We could look forlorn in the I'll, picture. I'll grab I'll, I'll I'll grab my phone during the break. We'll take a <laughs> selfie. There you go. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 37 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. Well, a German triathlete was banned from an all-you-can-eat sushi restaurant after eating nearly 100 plates of fish. <laughs> Jaroslav Bobrowski, an Ironman competitor, visited uh, visited rather running sushi um, in Bavaria last weekend for a never-ending meal. I mean, you got a big appetite, you want to go to an all-you-can-eat. This one apparently was just a little too big. According to the local Brabowski, he went to the restaurant, paid $15.90 euros or 15 euros. I'm not quite sure how to say it for the buffet. When I went to the checkout, I wanted to tip, but the waiter <laughs> didn't want to accept that. I'm not sure why, since he ate so much. The former bodybuilder sat down at a table and started eating. Didn't stop until he'd consumed nearly 100 plates of sushi. He eats for five people. That's not normal, the restaurant owner told the uh, local press. Brabowski 
he um, works as a software engineer by day, follows an extreme diet uh, where he doesn't eat for 20 hours and then eats until he's full. Apparently it takes a lot to fill him up. Uh, The until I'm full part is apparently what drove the restaurant to ban the athlete. Well, the owner told Brabowski's personally um, that he was no longer allowed to eat there because he's too costly and his habits cannot be supported. I'm banned for now and being uh, from now on rather for eating too much, Brabowski says. I was stunned, he said, before saying that he had a regular, he had been a regular at the uh, restaurant, but apparently they just could not sustain it. One thing that might help is what two brothers are doing to revolutionize the food industry. They're doing it with maggots. Uh, Jason and David Drew, it's for them a business. For many people, the idea of dealing with billions of flies buzzing around, rotting food is stomach churning. But for them... Hey, it's just another day's work. The two brothers own a company in South Africa that gets flies to lay hundreds of millions of eggs on food waste every day. The larvae are then sold as animal feed. Well, the Drew's company, AgriProtein, says it's a maggot's meal or maggot meal are an environmentally friendly alternative to fish meal, a widely used animal feed made with ground dried fish. Uh, We take waste and convert it into um, our three products, one of which is protein. The company's CEO says the other is... uh, are for animal feed made using oil extracted from larvae and a fertilizer made from a blend of larvae and garden compost. AgriProtein was founded in 2008. It raises about $105 million in its most recent round of funding this year and is valued at more than $200 million. Uh, the uh, Jason Eureka's moment uh, certainly wasn't glamorous in 2007, having sold his telecommunications business a few years earlier. He embarked on a passion project to follow food chains around the world, seeing waste tips surrounded by flies, he realized the insect larvae were an untapped protein source. So the Drews say that they've uh, been fascinated with insects ever since they uh, used flies and maggots to go fishing as children at their grandparents' home in England. Combining that interest with a desire to make food supplies more environmentally sustainable, they started research uh, into the science behind insect farming. We call it nutrient recycling. Uh, They're recycling waste nutrients into natural protein for chicken and fish. Today, AgriProtein has fly factories in Cape Town and Durban. Each factory contains about 8.4 billion flies and takes in 276 tons of food waste every day. The flies lay 304, uh, rather 340 million eggs on the waste every day. And of course, um, these meals out of maggots uh, took a while to succeed, but they're apparently succeeding. We spent nearly five years uh, in abject failure, says one of the brothers. If I had known how hard it would be and how much it would cost, I probably would not have started. The brothers received two grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help fund their research, but they found it harder than expected to master techniques for increasing the number of larvae and keeping them alive for long enough. They also encountered problems keeping costs under control as they tried to grow the business. But finally, things started to click. The fledgling industry is growing now, and it's exciting times, they say, for humanity as we start to tackle waste and protein problems all in one by maggot farming. Hmm. Well, when marketing food, not necessarily the food we were just talking about for fish and for um, for chickens, um, there's a color that apparently appeals to us more than any other. From burgers to fries, crispy chicken to pizza, there's one thing that fast food chains have in common, and it's not the unhealthiness of the menu options. You might notice that the majority of 
junk food chain restaurants feature the same shade of yellow in their logos. And marketing experts say there's a very good psychological reason for that. So if you want to resist uh, consuming the stuff, look away. Marketing advisors and founder of the Business Academy in uh, Lancashire, uh, Nikki Hesford, says that the color plays a key role in attracting or repulsing people. Yellow elicits feelings of warmth and comfort, which is why so many brands, including McDonald's, Burger King, Subway, Pizza Hut, In-N-Out, Taco Bell, use it in their logos. Choosing the right colors for a brand logo is an important task, as research by Color Communications, Inc. found. It takes just 90 seconds for someone to form an opinion of a brand, and between 62% and 90% of people make that decision on the colors used alone. Now, many fast food chains also use red in their logos as the color makes us feel hungry and impulsive, according to marketing experts. McDonald's, Burger King, Pizza Hut, and the U.S. chain In-N-Out are among the restaurants that use these colors in their signs. The use of red and yellow in fast food signs is called the ketchup and mustard theory, as the pairing of these two shades makes customers want to stop and grab a bite to eat. So it's not you, it's the marketing. Uh, between, uh, But some just use the uh, comforting shade of yellow, such as Subway and Taco Bell. Subway Subway, for example, pairs comforting yellow with an earthy green, which uh, Ms. Hesford says indicates the brand wants to market itself as being healthier than other fast food chains. She told uh, one uh, company that marketing is about connecting with people emotionally, creating stories, tapping into their hopes, dreams, and insecurities. Because that's what I'm thinking about when I'm in the drive-up line at McDonald's, my hopes, dreams, and insecurities. Stories, you know. Color plays a uh, leading role in that due to how people subconsciously process them, whether we're aware of it or not. Colors have uh, connotations and we make immediate judgments based on that. If you choose colors that are inconsistent with your message, you risk confusing your audience and weakening your brand. For example, if you're a healthy food business, uh, you would want to select choices that reinforce your message, such as green shades and earthy colors. may not be altogether appetizing, but subconsciously people are going to think, hmm, that's going to be better than an order of fries. And finally, an Ohio grocery store employee is facing the possibility of felony theft charges for her daily snacking habits. The unnamed employee worked at Bolivar at the grocery chain Giant Eagle for eight years. During that time, authorities say she helped herself three to five slices of ham every day, totaling about $9,200 in lost revenue. Authorities say she would also sometimes eat salami. Under what colors? They were packed in. The Associated Press reports that the uh, store's loss prevention manager received a tip that the employee had been eating uh, the meat slices for years. The woman is facing potential felony theft charges. However, the county sheriff's office said in a statement on Facebook that felony charges are unlikely. While our office did take a report of the issue as required or rather requested by the store, no determination on charges has yet been made. The procedure is uh, to send the report to the prosecutor's office and they're going to uh, be the ones who decide. While my office does not have the authority to make the final decision in the case, the police officer said, I do feel confident that once uh, all of the facts are relayed to the prosecutor, felony charges are unlikely. The statement read before adding that no arrests and no formal filing of charges has yet been made. My guess is the employee is probably looking for work elsewhere. Wow, $9,200 in deli meat. Just a slice at a time, here and there, morning, noon, night, day after day, year after year. I guess it all adds up. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I'll pause briefly because there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Um, wanted to just shift for a moment to a little bit of a 
more serious story that's really quite uh, warm-hearted in terms of someone taking their faith very seriously and uh, having lived through a very difficult uh, youth, coming to the conclusion that God's way of dealing with challenge is the best way. Well, his South Sudan homeland is uh, continued, uh, I should say, to be ripped apart by protracted civil war. But a former child uh, child fighter turned prominent hip hop artist says that he's not giving up his campaign to end the recruitment of children on the battlefield. Now, he was once himself a child uh, fighting on that battlefield. He managed to escape and, of course, now has a uh, career that makes him a popular figure. After all, Emmanuel Jal, a Christian who learned to kill at the tender age of eight, think about that for a moment, he says he knows from what he speaks. From the time I was young, I was walking around seeing dead bodies of people from my village. People I knew got shot and died next to me, he said in an interview. This was on Fox News on Monday. He appeared at an Oslo Freedom Forum event in New York. Then I was recruited as a child soldier, and that took me to the next level. As a kid, I had a desire to kill as many Muslims and Arabs as possible. Born sometime in 1980, he's not certain, in the South Sudan village of Tonj, Jal was just a toddler when the Second Sudanese Civil War ignited a few years later. At the age of seven, he woke up uh, one morning to learn his mother had been murdered. He was then taken in and indoctrinated by Christian commanders in the Sudan People's Liberation Army, or SPLA, which was fighting the increasingly repressive Islamic government. I was taken and trained. I was taught how to fire a gun, how to attack, how to fight, how to take uh, take care of myself, he recalled. The training was difficult, but it would have been much harder if I hadn't seen all that I had seen. The flashbacks, the suffering of the people, the bitterness of what allowed me to get through and finish the training, he writes of himself at seven. Jal says he got lucky five years later when he was rescued by a British aid worker and ushered off to school. In his words, trading a gun for a pen. More than 25 years later, the memories still sting. To cope, he relies on his Christian, or rather the Christian concept of forgiveness. He says forgiveness is a process because you get hit every day. I have seen this war take my loved ones away, but you have to know that the dark force, which can push to achieve great things, can also make you become like the same people who exploited you. He explained that, so we all have to find something that we can hold on to, something that makes our life significant and use it to make a contribution. Well, a contribution he is making. For Jal, that something is his music. In addition to his activism, he's managed to make a living and ignite a substantial following as a hip-hop musician. With songs like War Child and Cease Fire, he shares vignettes of his life and aims to motivate the youth in his homeland to seek peace, prosperity, and unity. It's a heavy lift. I just did an album with my sister who is in the refugee camp and the music has also allowed me to manage her thoughts and anger. She was raped several times and has witnessed so many atrocities, he said. The area I come from in South Sudan, four in every five women has been raped. So many have become pregnant out of that circumstance. And then kids, young men castrated, 60 people from just my family killed. How do I process that? I have to balance and say, hey, I know these forces. Um, I will be the bridge and the hope. Well, Jal has also been an outspoken critic against those in the American hip hop culture who exploit themes of drugs, sexual violence, greed and gangs. Yet despite a global awareness of what is still happening inside South Sudan, a country the United States sent, spent rather billions on and led the push to formally declare as the world's newest country in 2011, there's no end in sight for the bloodshed. 
The ongoing civil war there, which broke out in 2013 as a power struggle between President Salva Kiir, who accused his former deputy of plotting a coup attempt, is heading toward its sixth year. And the recruitment of child soldiers is still rising, according to UNICEF. A report le- released by Amnesty International this month also casts an even murkier light on the depths of depravity in South Sudan. The investigation found civilians have been burned alive, hung in trees, swung into tree trunks until dead, uh, shot um, indiscriminately while hiding in swamps and run over with armed vehicles by government forces in rebel-occupied areas. And yet this young man somehow has found it in his faith, in his heart, to forgive and to urge others to do the same. It's an amazing, uh, amazing thing to consider. God working in the heart of a young person who has been so deeply wounded. Taking a look at what's coming up next week on the program. On Monday, we're looking forward to a conversation with Rod Gregg. He's the author of The Word, the history of the Bible and how it came to us. It's important for those of us who take God's word seriously to have a bit of that history and how the scriptures were canonized. We'll talk about it on Monday. And then on Tuesday, we're looking forward to a conversation with Sandy Snavely and Connie McClellan. We had anticipated a conversation this week, but due to some personal challenges and a health crisis. Uh, we rescheduled for Tuesday, and I've just learned that the situation has um, has uh, shifted, and so I'm, I'm putting that uh, that date in pencil because that could change as well. But our, our plan is to talk with Sandy and Connie on Tuesday, and we're going to be talking about the Masterpiece Conference, The Art of Finishing well, I suppose it's easy to start out well. I started uh, as a uh, an athlete, as a runner, and starting out of the blocks very quickly, that's the easy part, although it does require some skill. But finishing well, finishing strong, well, that's a whole other matter. We'll talk with Sandy and Connie about that on Tuesday. And we're also going to talk with uh, Denise Pass, author of Shame Off You, From Hiding to Healing. We'll talk about the damage that shame, when it's misplaced, can do and how to um, move away from that to healing. On Wednesday, we'll talk with April Yamasaki, author of Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. Now, this is in a biblical perspective, not this self-focus that, uh, to the exclusion of everything else, makes um, uh, makes us uh, be far more focused on self than we ought. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Meg Wilson, author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. Uh, it's a revised and expanded edition. We'll talk with Meg about that. And then on Friday, uh, we will lighten up. Now, it's going to be an interesting week next week because there may be a hearing of some sort. In the Kavanaugh case, there's ongoing investigation into a number of things that could break next week. So, If there is breaking news, we will certainly break in even on Friday this or next week. So uh, be assured of that. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program and engineering and producing all this week and next. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.